Father, today we understand that at the beginning of this new year of 2024, that there are some people facing, as we've mentioned, a lot of challenges, a lot of hurt. And yet we know at the same time this is nothing new. It may be new to us. It may be new according to the calendar, but it's not new according to the human condition. People have been going through ups and downs, valleys and mountains and heartaches and troubles and trials and all of these things since the fall. And we know, Lord, that you are always with your people. You're faithful to your people. You keep your promises to your people. And you are present with your people. I pray that all of these that are on our hearts today would feel and know the presence of God and the comfort that comes from that. Pray that they would remember the promises that are in the Word of God. And we come today to claim the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of life. Power to overcome sin. Power to overcome the trials of life. Power to overcome our deficiencies. Power to overcome what our enemies do to us. Power to overcome all of these things and more. And we claim that today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask you to heal us, strengthen us, and to work through us and to do it in a way that brings the most glory and honor unto you. Pray that you would help us to minister to other people, to remember other people, to pray for other people, to serve other people. Because in your word, you told us that we're to love God with everything we have and are. And we are also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that would include our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we pray for people that we know that are lost. And we want to pray for them to hear, to believe, and to receive the gospel, to repent of their sins, and put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And we thank you, Father, that we have you as our, not our last resort, but our first resource in everything that we do. We lean upon you, we trust you, and we ask you to bless and to feed us. Help us to be more of what we ought to be in the process of sanctification. May we take a giant step forward today as a result of being together. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us that this world is not our home and remind us that all of the things that are going on in this world, that you allow them and they are leading us, good and bad, to the purpose that you have planned for this world and for our lives. And so, Lord, we trust you and we truly have walked in the goodness of God. So blessed be the name of the Lord is our cry of our heart this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen would uh, take your Bibles this morning. We're going back to John and we're going to finish up chapter four this morning. This is a long chapter and it covers an awful lot of territory. So turn to uh, the fourth chapter of the book of John and uh, we'll look at uh, beginning at verse 46. Now what we're going to see in here is um, as we look at this story, it's, an, it's a neat story about the uh, nobleman from Capernaum that came to Jesus. And as we look and see the miracle of what Jesus performed, at the very end of this you find, and this is the second sign. In other words, this is not just a cool story. This has a purpose in it. 
And when we think about what Jesus said when he left Judea and Samaria and then was going into Galilee, he said, a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. And so he knew that the people there were going to be excited about Jesus coming, but not really because it was Jesus. It was more about the stuff that he did, the miracles that he performed. They really didn't embrace him. He was an entertainer. He was the greatest showman of his generation. He was a magician. He was something like that. And so uh, Jesus is showing them that their assumptions about him are all wrong. How could Jesus be anything special? He's just one of us. He grew up in this area. We knew his parents were probably related to him in some way. How could he be anything special? And yet, you got to admit, there's something about him, and they would assume things about him that were all wrong. You know what I found as I was working on this? It's not any different than our day. We live in the Bible Belt. Some might even say the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, everybody claims that in the, uh, this part of the country. But at the same time, so many people you run to who have been to church, they've been to camp, they've been to VBS, they've been to all of these kind of things, but they really don't know who Jesus is. And the tragedy is they think they do. And sometimes you hear people that are just out-and-out secularists on uh, maybe the TV or a podcast or something like that. They say to a Christian, how can you say that Jesus is a loving God and he would never affirm that? I heard Gavin Newsom, of all people, say that to John MacArthur in an interview that took place on Larry King probably 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. People that have not the faintest idea about our Lord claim to be experts in Him. People that do not open their Bible, they do not read their Bible, they do not understand their Bible, they do not fellowship with believers, and yet they are experts on Jesus. That's probably the way the people in Galilee were. They said, Jesus, oh yeah, we know Him. We grew up with Him. We went to school together. We went to the synagogues together. Our parents and his parents are related. We, we, we know all about Jesus. And so they missed him because they made assumptions about him. And uh, again, that's what people do. Maybe you do that. Maybe, maybe I'm speaking to you. I'm not condemning you because I don't have any reason or right to condemn you other than to say that the Bible says if you don't believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, you're condemned already. John chapter 3 verse 17 uh, says that. So I say this as a word of warning and out of love and out of compassion and care for you. I want you to know the real Jesus as he's presented in the Bible. And for those of you who do know him, I want you to trust him more. The old hymn says, oh, for grace to trust him more. And every day we ought to be growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and we ought to be trusting him more. And so the goal of this message is to introduce Jesus to those who are living by just assumptions and also to strengthen those who know the truth, grace to trust him more. So let's look in John chapter 4 and we're going to begin reading in verse 46. It's a very, very cool story. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. 
That's about 20 miles away from Cana, by the way. Verse 47. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Feel the desperation in this man's life? Uh, Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Well, that's a little off-putting. And yet it doesn't deter the man. Look at verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was now going down, his servants uh, met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour uh, when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that would either be one o'clock by Jewish time or seven o'clock by Roman uh, time. And uh, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, that's a big statement, and his whole household This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So the whole purpose of this is a sign to show who Jesus is, to show that he is the Messiah among the very people that would probably discount that more than any others. Now, this is not saying that his people in Galilee were not necessarily friendly to him. They probably were more accepting and friendly to him as just a regular person simply because he's kin, kinfolk. Simply because he's one of them. Simply because he's from that area. You know how we always perk up whenever we see somebody. Maybe uh, you find out that uh, there's been another Miss America crowned and she's from Oklahoma. Well, you don't have any idea who that person is, but you feel a kinship. You feel a little bit of pride when you hear about an astronaut uh, that's from Oklahoma. We have a lot of them. And uh, we, we kind of feel a little bit of pride from all of that. When you find out, maybe through your ancestry DNA, that you are related to a famous person or influential person, you feel a little bit of pride in that, even though you've never met the person. And so Jesus had some familiarity, but we also know, it's not in Scripture, but it certainly is true, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. And so they looked at Jesus, and there was a part of them where they would uh, defend him, be friendly to him, and uh, in some ways support him, but not in the godly ways, the spiritual ways, or the biblical ways. He's just one of us. And uh, we can say bad things about him, but you people from Judea can't, and that sort of thing, like we do and we've experienced uh, in our own lives. And so uh, this is a sign to these people who would be probably the most skeptical of him, those who think that they know him, they assume that they know him, 
but they really don't. He's completely different than what they think. Nobody else that they know, none of their other cousins could turn water into wine. None of their other uncles or aunts or uh, third cousins could uh, heal a nobleman's son or anything like that. In fact, from the very beginning of this story in verse 46 would be something that would be absolutely shocking and attention-getting, and it happened even before anything was spoken, anything was said. It happened before there was any news about the nobleman's son being even sick, much less healed. And so uh, let's take a look at this. And number one, when we think about the assumptions of Jesus, I'll make the point about what the text says and then the assumption that it kind of addresses. So number one, I want you to notice the improbable. This is a situation that would never happen. We might say this, 99% of the time this would never happen. I promise you, anybody in Galilee would say 100% of the time this never happens. And what is it? A nobleman, as, it's, uh, uh, as he's called in my translation, came to a carpenter. Now, if we're not careful, we plug in the fact, well, of course, Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords of the lineage of David. Of course, this man would come to Jesus. This man didn't know any of that. This man didn't believe any of that. This man was a pagan, and uh, this he was a, of the nobility. He's called in here a nobleman, and he would never, ever come to a carpenter. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a, a certain nobleman, that word's going to be important to us, whose son was sick, that's an important word too in the original language, at Capernaum. And so this man had come 20 miles to find Jesus. Now, again, we look and we say, oh, well, the shepherds did that, and look what the wise men did, and, and look at all of this kind of stuff. Of course he did. Again, keep in mind, this guy didn't know anything about that. He had no reason, humanly speaking, to come and to seek out Jesus except for some rumors. He had heard some things about this guy. This guy does some things that are, that are inexplicable. This guy does some things that nobody else can do. This guy does some things that cause your jaw to drop in amazement. So he says, well, it's worth a try. I'll go on behalf of my son. And so he does that. And he implores him to, notice this, come down and heal his son. He makes the assumption Jesus has to be physically present with his son to perform any kind of miracle. And then he tells us he's at the point of death. Now that's the context for the whole thing. This nobleman is absolutely desperate. His son dies if somebody doesn't do anything for him. Now, I want to uh, call your attention to what I think the assumption was on the part of the nobleman, on the part of the people. This is why this sign is so important. There's the assumption here that Jesus is inferior and he is accountable to us. Okay? Now, nobody says that, but they always act this way. Why didn't God answer my prayer? I prayed and God didn't do anything. And so if God's not going to answer my prayer, I won't come to church anymore. How many people don't come to church this morning because they didn't get what they wanted out of God? 
I'll promise you it's more common than you think. I would even imagine there are some of you even here that are struggling with the fact that you say, I prayed and I sought the Lord and what I prayed for didn't take place and I don't understand why. I've even had people say to me, Preacher, whenever I get to heaven, God's got some explaining to do. You kidding me? You're not going to have any questions. What is at the root of all of that? There's the idea that here's Jesus, and we know who he is and what he did, but he's got to answer to me. And he's got to be there when I want him to be there, and he's got to do what I want him to do. Now, I know this nobleman here didn't say that, but do you see it? And do you see that the other people that are looking around and watching Jesus... These other Galileans, they did not really see who he was or think that highly of him. He's just a guy you went to when you wanted your chair to be fixed. He's just a guy that, well, we've known him all of our lives. And for 33 years, he was a guy that we saw walking down the street hauling wood for his father, Joseph. He's a guy that would use the axe or the saw or whatever that they would be doing in order to make something for the house. He's a guy that did the stonework. There wasn't a whole lot of wood in that area to do the stonework for the house that we were building. All of these things. He is just a carpenter. In fact, we find that later on when Jesus preaches in his hometown synagogue and he reads out of the book of Isaiah and then he says, this scripture is fulfilled today before your very eyes. What did they want to do? They were going to stone him. Who does this guy think he is? We know his father. We know his mother. He's one of us. He's uppity. Who in the world is he claiming to be? How is he going to get away with this? This is what your family does to you, isn't it? This is why it is harder to witness to family members than it is to perfect strangers. It's easy to go to a place like Venezuela and to go there and go door to door. It's hard to do it where you live. It's hard to do that among your family. It's hard to speak up among your family members because you're going to get it. They're not afraid of you. They're not intimidated by you. And this is where Jesus found himself. That's why he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And then he goes there so that he can display his glory and his power so that people uh, will honor him the way that they should. And it starts off with this man who is called a nobleman. Now, interestingly enough, nobleman, what, what does that mean to us. Well, the Greek word is basileos, and uh, it means that he was a part of the king's court, that he was a nobleman or a courtier, we might say. Sometimes it's even translated king, but we know with the Roman system there, Herod was the king in that area. Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great from the Christmas story, it was his son. And uh, when I looked at about 20 translations, I found that sometimes it's translated nobleman in the New King James. Sometimes it's translated a royal official. Sometimes it is translated a government official. And one time it is even translated as king, lowercase. Now, this person, this courtier, this official, this person who is a part of the royal court of Herod Antipas, his son, now that's not a baby and it's not an adult, this is a little kid son, he is sick. 
Now, this is not an ordinary sickness. He's not coming saying, my kid has a cold, help him. My kid has the mumps, help him. Or something like that that we don't think that much about. Uh, What was interesting to me is when it says his child was sick, it uses the same Greek word that is used in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Let's see, that ought to ring a bell. Oh, yeah. John chapter 11, verse 1. There was a man, and his name was Lazarus. Remember him? And it says, and he was sick. It's the same word that is used here for this boy. Now, we know from Lazarus, Lazarus was so sick, what happened to him? Anybody know? He died. Yeah. This is a serious sickness. And uh, the Greek word is is a word that means extreme weakness. uh, Bedfast. Unable to do anything for yourself. I remember uh, Carl Kerrigan one time when he was here preaching. And uh, boy, I miss him. And uh, I remember him saying one time, he goes, I got up this morning. He goes, I put on my clothes. I washed my face. I shaved. I went and I ate breakfast and uh, then ran some errands. And then he shouted out, cancer, not today. Okay, know what he was saying? I'm up and I'm around, not today, not today. Because people, when they come to the point of their death, normally they come to the point of being comatose. They come to the point of being very weak. They come to the point where they don't eat, they don't drink, they don't speak, they don't do anything like that at all. And I know there are some exceptions, somebody that kills over of a heart attack or is hit by a car or shot or something like that or a drug overdose, those type of things. But... Most of the time, if you talk to anybody who works in hospice, they'll tell you that they see the signs of death sometimes a month or so before it actually happens, but they increase and they know those signs when the person comes. And usually, people do not die speaking in a normal voice and getting up out of bed and feeding themselves and all of that. It goes downhill. That's the word that is used here. This boy is weak. This boy is bedfast. This boy is, as our text said, at the point of death. And because of the desperation this man feels, he does something that never, ever happens. This rich nobleman, this person who is a royal government official, comes and seeks out a carpenter. The only thing they knew about Jesus in the palace was, we hear weird things about this man who is, what kind of man is he? Is he a priest? Is he a rabbi? uh, He's a village carpenter. He's a small town, small businessman, works with his hands. He's just a no-name village carpenter. Okay. Now, one of the things we know that would never happen is, A nobleman like this would never seek out a commoner. He would never seek out a carpenter for any kind of help at all. So this is what we would call a desperate situation that caused him to leave Capernaum, go 20 miles to find a village carpenter in the hopes that maybe he just might do something. You know what breaks my heart today? For a lot of people, again, I may be even speaking to you, 
That's all Jesus is to them. He's a somebody that we have heard of, and he seems to make a difference for some people. Maybe I'll give him a whirl. There's got to be something to it. I mean, you know, I'm not really sure I believe in resurrection or atonement or miracles or anything like that, but good night. We're still talking about him 2,000 years after he died. There's got to be something to it, and that's as far as it ever goes. Is that you? Do you really know him? Do you really trust him? Or is he just an afterthought? Is he a rumor? Is he an assumption? Is he somebody that you think might be able to do something somehow for you and so you might as well give him a whirl? That's not saving faith, by the way. Number two, I want you to notice that the way the Lord answered this man, what would you do if you went to see Jesus and he answered you like this? The rebuke is point number two. Jesus is not a performer, an entertainer. He's not a showman. He's not a magician. He's not anything like that at all, is he? Look at verses 48 and 49. Then Jesus said to them, unless, this is interesting, unless you, do you notice that uh, if you have the word people in your translation, it's in italics? Why is it in italics? That means it's not in the original manuscript. It's not in the Greek. However, it's put there and it doesn't do violence. It smooths it out because the word you there is plural. Okay, Because, we might say it like this, because y'all, right? Because you all, or in the way I was raised, because all y'all, yeah, you have to put it all together to make it real, really emphasize. Because you people see signs, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now he says this to this man. Please, heal my son. Do whatever you have to do. Yeah, you're just like all the rest. Unless you see a sign, you don't believe. What would you do? I might be tempted to go, well, I guess this is the end. There's no hope here. This guy's not interested. He's not even friendly. He, he didn't even ask what the situation was or anything like that. He just speaks like that. But look at his desperation and his persistence. Verse 49. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now what's the assumption? What's the assumption? This man is coming to Jesus for one reason. And that is uh, a lot of people do. This is why people will have no room for God in their life until their mom dies or their daughter dies or their cousin dies or something like that. Then we've got to come to church. Then we've got to have a preacher at the funeral. Then we've got to have God involved because we really need him now. This is why people will go to a hospital chapel when they won't ever go to church. This is the reason why all of these things happen. We've got to get God involved now because there's an assumption among people, and you see it a little bit in this, nob in this nobleman. Jesus came for my benefit, for my enjoyment, and for my happiness. And uh, that's uh, the only time when that is threatened, that's the only time I will summon him and it's almost just like it we would never think of summoning jesus we think about summoning a butler summoning a a, a servant or uh, commissioner gordon would summon batman remember uh, those kind of things 
And we would never say that about Jesus, but that's the way so many people live. Stay over there until I need you. I'll call you when I need you. I'll call you when something comes up that I can't handle. And that's kind of the way it was here. And Jesus addresses this in that rebuke. It wasn't just to the nobleman because it was put in the plural. It was to all of those Galileans, all of those people who knew him, all of those cousins, all of those aunts and uncles, all of those other people around him that he had grown up with. And he is rebuking all of them saying that you only come to me for what you can get out of me. And there are a lot of churches that are preaching that today. And there's a whole word faith movement that kind of tells you that you go to God and you demand all of the things that are coming to you. And so the nobleman here, let's think about this. He's coming to Jesus. Well, you say, if that's so weird and that would never happen, then what would happen? Normally, the nobleman would stay in his palace and he would send guards. Go get that carpenter and bring him here. And Jesus had been virtually arrested and brought into the presence of the nobleman. And then the nobleman would tell him what he is going to do. You will heal my son and you get it done even now. I mean, after all, this is a guy that works for Herod Antipas. Now, remember, there was Herod the Great. He was a puppet king of Rome, and he's the one that dealt with the wise man and alive when Jesus was born. When he died, he had three sons, and they divided his kingdom up into three parts. And Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great that was ruler over Galilee, over the district that Jesus was raised in. And so this man worked for and was a part of the government of Herod Antipas, controlled by Rome, of course, but Antipas took care of it. And normally he would summon the carpenter to come to him, but here he is coming 20 miles to find the carpenter, seeking him out, and then begging him to heal his son. This is desperation. He had heard stories about Jesus, apparently, and his miracles, and probably did not want to make him mad by forcing him to come. See, the last thing, if you need a miracle, the last thing you want to do is make the miracle worker upset. So if he had had Jesus arrested, Jesus could come in and he says, make my son well, and Jesus would say, no, I don't feel like it. Not this time, and the son dies. The nobleman is covering all of his bases. If we're going to find this guy and we're going to have him in a good mood and we're going to have him willing to conjure up one of his miracles then we've got to keep him in a good mood. So I will go where he is, and I will go to him and implore him. A shocking thing for everybody watching. They were aghast at all of this. They had never seen anything like this, and yet that's what's happening. But the nobleman is not doing that because he really believes and wants to honor Jesus. He's just covering all of his bases. And so uh, he and the others believe that Jesus could do amazing things, but did not really see him as God. They did not see him as a Messiah. Just a magician, something like that. Just kind of a... Are you, you remember some of you who are older, David Copperfield? Remember his shows? Going to make, what was it, the Statue of Liberty disappear or something like that? It was nothing more than that. The greatest showman. Let's gather, hey, this guy's around here in town and people are coming and there's some sick people coming. Let's see what happens. 
Wow, that was amazing. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. Man, there's something to that, but it never, never went any further than that. So it's kind of the idea of when you get desperate enough, just try Jesus. And I've heard a lot of songs about that. You know, there was a contemporary Christian song back in the early days of that, that why don't you look into Jesus? He's the answer. And people had that. Let's give him a try. Let's give him a whirl. And those people never last. Those people always walk away from it because you don't try Jesus. You commit yourself unto Jesus. And um, one of the movies our family likes to watch during the Christmas season is It's a Wonderful Life. You ever watch that? Oh, what a good movie. What a great movie. Not if you're going to be getting theology from it. Don't get your theology from it. You might learn how to treat other people, but don't get your theology from it because people don't become angels when they die, number one. And secondly, when you look at George Bailey's life, he gets into trouble. Uncle Billy loses $8,000, which was a lot of money back then. And uh, he goes to Mr. Potter and tries to get a loan and all of that. And then he ends up at Martini's Bar. Remember that? And he's drinking. In fact, the owner says, why you drink so much? So he's drunk. And then he tries to pray. And uh, I've got the prayer here in a quote. Okay, uh, Let me just read you this whole paragraph I copied. Um, in It's a Wonderful Life, it says, Believing himself to be worth more dead than alive, George Bailey prays quietly at a bar after discovering his Uncle Billy has lost $8,000 deposit and he has no means to solve the problem. And here's what he says, quote, Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. Well, that's great faith, isn't it? If you can hear me, if you're up there, that's as far as it goes. That's the way a lot of people live. Probably most people live in the Bible Belt. Oh, they can talk about Jesus. They know a Bible story or two. They can share common experiences, but that's about all they think. If you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. No repentance, no faith, nothing like that. Now, listen. Later, he gets punched in the face and he says, Yeah, I got a bust in the jaw as an answer to prayer a little bit ago. I hope your faith goes further than that. And I hope you understand more about Jesus than that. And that it's not just in times of crisis, not just in times of trial, not just in times of desperation. Now, God can use desperation to bring you to Jesus, but I hope it goes further than that. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Right? Well, that brings us then to this third thing. And look at the sovereign. Jesus works in his way and on his terms. And so it says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way. Now the nobleman is saying, come heal my son. And Jesus says, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed at the word of Jesus, uh, the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Now we live by an assumption that Jesus is just kind of passive, that Jesus is merely responding to us, and that he is happy to take whatever he can get. Is that the truth? Is Jesus saying today to you, I just want you to love me so bad, I'll take whatever I can get? 
Well, I'll only give you Sundays. Okay, okay, that's enough. Thank you, thank you. Is that Jesus? Now, the nobleman had one thing in mind. I will go to him, and he will come with me, and he will heal my son. And Jesus said, no, I've got a different plan. I've got a different way. I don't follow man's plans. I do what I am going to do. Now, I'll be kind, and I'll be merciful, and I'll heal your son, but I will do it my way, not the way that you expect. Now, how many times do people get tangled up and tripped up because they prayed a certain way, and even though God may have answered their prayer, He didn't do it at the right time. He didn't do it at the right way. He didn't do it the way it was expected. In fact, I have people say from time to time, okay, I want to pray for you. Now, tell me how I can pray specifically. Okay, that's good and bad. Now, if you're praying specifically so that you know when God answers it, I mean, sometimes we pray, Oh, God, bless everybody everywhere, wherever they may be. I have no idea when that is ever answered or not. But when I pray for somebody who is in the hospital, Oh, God, raise them up and heal them, and they come home in a week, then I praise God, I've got an answer. Now, that's a benefit to specific praying. But if I'm praying because I think that if I can get specific, God is obligated to answer. I'm praying for John Doe, and I'm praying for him for this and this and this and this and this, as if God is going, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, okay, got my orders. Can you imagine? Sometimes we are so arrogant when we don't even mean to be. And this nobleman is coming with an expectation that he's going to ask Jesus and tell Jesus what to do. And Jesus, I mean, this is a guy after all who's used to people obeying him, that Jesus is going to do what the guy says. And Jesus basically says, no, I'm not doing it your way. You know, the Bible says, as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts above my thoughts and your ways, or my ways above your ways. Let me get that right. And we forget that sometimes. We forget who's in charge. And we forget that when we pray, we're not informing God. We're not giving Him a good strategy. We're not telling where He needs to be and when He needs to be somewhere and and who specifically He has to touch. He already knows all of that. And sometimes we forget. We act like we're giving God a honeydew list. You guys ever get a honey-do list? How about this? Next time your wife gives you a honey-do list, you give her a list that says, Honey, don't do this. See how it goes for you, right? Well, we treat God like we're giving Him some kind of a honey-do list, and He better show up here and now in this situation, and He just doesn't do that. He's the sovereign the nobleman had other plans and he thought that jesus would just drop everything and head to capernaum jesus no he had other things to do and he's in control of all of this this is a guy who is used to getting his way and in fact he may have even been influenced by herod herod antipas is a guy at the end of jesus life Pilate sends jesus over to herod And in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, this is at the end of Jesus' life. It says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, excited. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him. Probably from this guy we're talking about today. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now, in my mind, that's about as far as anybody's faith is going at this particular point. Give me the show. 
do something. You know, if it benefits me, man, that's great. Give me a million dollars. You remember in It's a Wonderful Life, every time George Bailey as a kid walks into the drugstore, he goes to the uh, cigar lighter thing and he, you know, clicks it. And if it lights, he goes, hot dog, I wish I had a million dollars. That's the way people approach Jesus. If I can get healed, if I can have a good business, if my family does well, and if I can get rich off of it, yeah, I'll serve you and I'll follow you as far as as that goes and this is as far as anything is really going the nobleman here believes but he doesn't fully commit to jesus he did obey give him credit for that but that brings us to number four and we'll be finished the surrender it all boils down to surrender so i'll ask you this i'm not asking did you pray a prayer i'm not asking did you walk an aisle i'm not asking did you feel anything i'm not asking did you cry i'm not asking did you feel bad about the way your life had been before i'm not asking if you saw a miracle or a bright light or anything like that i'm just asking this when you got saved did you surrender to jesus christ jesus is Lord, boss, master, king over your life. And finally, this nobleman, when we get to the end, he surrenders. Because faith is not in a concept, a doctrine, a church, an institution, organization. Get this, faith is in a person. Jesus lives. And you trust in the living God when you are trusting in Jesus. And that implies surrender to him it says in verse 52 then he inquired of them what hour that uh, the boy got better and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him and so the father knew that it was the same hour in which jesus said to him your son lives and he himself believed and his whole household you see the assumption of that time among the Romans especially and among people today is Jesus is just one way, just one way, one way of many in which we have faith. All roads and all religions, well, they, they all lead to God. We just go different ways and call him by different names. You remember Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except how? Through me. Yeah, you got it. Through me. That's an exclusivity. And that's what this sign is pointing to. This isn't just some common everyday yokel here. This isn't just your cousin like all your other cousins. This isn't just a distant relative like all of your other distant relatives. This isn't just a neighbor like your other neighbor down the street. This isn't just a village carpenter and no more. This is God in human flesh. And he does some amazing things. But you don't know him until you know who he is. God in human flesh. You don't know him until you actually surrender to him. That he, through his death on the cross, is the full payment for your sin. Nothing more, nothing less. Till you surrender to the fact that he actually literally bodily was raised from the dead. Conquering death hell and the grave until you understand and surrender to the fact that he rules your life you do not rule your life he rules your life and you follow and obey him 
That's what a Christian is. And you believe that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And he is returning one day. And you have confessed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you are going by these assumptions that we've talked about, always oh, just one of many ways to God, and, well, he, you know, I'll call on him when I need him because I've heard he's always ready, always available, and I had ding, ring the bell, and here comes Jesus the bellboy to carry my luggage to my room or whatever it is. I mean, all of these kind of things that go on, then I've got news for you. That is not the way that it works. And so earlier, the nobleman believed in Jesus, believed in. Notice the word, in Jesus. But the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 29, the jailer in Philippi said, Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now notice the difference. So they said to him, believe not in, believe on, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so there are tons of people today that believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, he existed. Oh yeah, I'll call upon him when I think he might be able to do me some good. There are those times, you know what I mean, you just, you, you need Jesus but uh, not every day and not in every situation. And I certainly don't need the Word of God. I don't need the church. I don't need the morality of Christianity or anything like that until I think I need it. That's believing in Jesus. Yeah, there's something to that. And, uh, and I'm sure there's some great things that He has done for other people. And it may be good for you, but it's not good for me. You have your truth, I have my truth, and all of that kind of stuff, which ends up being a bunch of gibberish, doesn't it? As opposed to this, I believe on Jesus Christ. I am trusting in Him and Him alone. If He fails, I'm toast. I am trusting my eternity and my life to Him. And everything that He is and everything that He says is now a part of my life. Did you do that when you... Walked an aisle when you prayed a prayer, when you had your crisis moment and you said, Oh God, if you'll get me out of this, I promise I'll always serve you and always love you. Is that what your life goes? Because you may be the one living by the assumptions that are here. And that's not good. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ as he presents himself. This is a sign. This is the man that noblemen bow before. This is the man that can heal without even being present. He can take care of it. This is the man that is worthy of your surrender and your submission. So will you surrender to him today and trust him as your Savior and your Lord that he did it all? Because that is the bottom line for everything in your life. You need a savior. You need a deliverer. You don't need a temporary fix. You don't need a Mr. Potter to loan you some money to keep the bank examiner from filing charges against you. You need somebody who can pay the fine. You need somebody who can get you to where you are in a state of righteousness, innocent before God. And only Jesus can do that. And he did that on the cross of Calvary. So will you trust him today? Will you examine your life? And if you are a believer, will you let your life and your strength, uh, your faith be strengthened today for the glory of God? 
I'd like to pray with you if I could. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Father, as we think about this story, this sign, we pray, Lord, that we haven't missed the sign. And we pray that all of us understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and we also understand how short we fall of the glory of God, as Paul said. And all of these assumptions fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful. Forgive us. Bring us into a right understanding and a right relationship. I pray for people to trust Christ and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in Him. And pray, Lord, that these things would be corrected and we would know You as Savior and Lord. And that our faith would be strong and we would tell others about you and that we would live according to what you say as obedient servants of God. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.